Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. What will you be doing July 14th and 15th? If you ask any serious angler on the Atlantic side of Florida, they'll tell you they're heading out for red snapper season. Can two days even be called a season? especially since Gulf Coast anglers get more than 60 days for red snapper season. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it doesn't for me. It has Atlantic anglers fired up yet again this year after a similar situation in 2022. Why does the Gulf side get so much time while the Atlantic side doesn't? It's a good question, and I have just the person to answer it. His name is Ed Killer, and he's been covering the Atlantic coast of Florida out of Fort Pierce for more than 30 years. Ed will join us shortly to discuss this situation, as well as lobster mini season, hurricane season, scallop diving season, and gulp, a python harvesting challenge. I'll pass on that. That and so much more, so stick around. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper and, of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. Ed Killer is not only one of the most knowledgeable outdoors reporters in existence, he's also got the perfect name. It's like having a library cop named Bookman or an ice cream man named Cone. Let's bring him in here and get underway. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tim. Absolutely. Love having you on to talk about things. And I'm going to start here, Ed, because this past weekend I was at the beach and that sargassum weed from where the water broke all the way up to the sea oats was just covering the beaches of Brevard County. And that, that's about as bad as I've seen here recently. So it seems like this has been around for a few months and they warned us about it as it was coming. So uh, any idea when it's going to be going? Yeah, it's prob- probably probably by the end of the month, you know, probably by the time July gets here. We'll have some tide cycles, some high tide cycles. We'll also have some, we'll have some weather systems and maybe a little bit of west wind, and so it, it will probably get a break here, you know, probably pretty soon. Uh, it should be towards the end of the period of time when we have a problem with the sargassum weed. We usually get it. It's like a spring phenomenon, and it's, it's pretty much affects m- much of the state's beaches. I know that uh, the Treasure Coast counties. You know, Martin, St. Lucie, Indian River, they've they've also had good amounts of uh, sargassum weed piled up on the beaches, and Palm Beach County has had it. I know some uh, Gulf some Gulf counties have had it too. So it's a it's like a statewide and Caribbean wide phenomenon. There's a lot of the a lot of the material out there right now. It's all floating around, and it'll take a little bit of west wind, a little bit of high tides to kind of clear off the beaches a little bit, but also to kind of get 
to to where the sargassum starts to starts to die off a little bit and sink through the water column and and not become as much of a problem as it was. So was it extra aggressive this past weekend because of that system that was out in the Gulf and working its way around Florida and pushing stuff on the shore, or would it probably have been this strong even without that? You know, um, I th- I think that's a good theory. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not a meteorologist, and I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm sort of familiar with the ocean currents, though. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these currents, uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of these main currents that go through, go, that affect Florida. One is the Gulf Stream, of course, and it's part of the loop current that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico. So you have a current that kind of spins clockwise around the Gulf of Mexico, like along the northern Gulf states and then down along uh, the southern or the, you know, down along Florida's Gulf Coast. And then it, it, it comes into the loop current which is near the Keys, which carries it into the Gulf Stream, which carries it to the north. And what we have along the east, the Atlantic coast beaches in Florida is not so much like in Jupiter, but the Gulf Stream is very close to Florida's coastline from the Keys all the way up to about Jupiter. Then as Florida's coastline has a more northwest heading on it, the Gulf Stream stays to the north. So from Stewart and then Fort Pierce and Sebastian and Port Canaveral and then you know even farther north into New Smyrna Beach and Jacksonville you see where the Gulf Stream is farther and farther away from the actual Florida coastline and those these back eddies that spin backwards off of the current and come south along the Atlantic coast beaches is what carries that sargassum into the beach so you have these back eddies that kind of sweep the sargassum from the Gulf Stream out into that that distance that's, that could that's from the Gulf Stream into the beach, which off of Sebastian, for instance, is about 24 miles. So it's it's these back eddies are pretty giant, big back eddies that sweep the uh, the currents back in along the coast and carry everything with it along with the sargassum. So um, so it gets bad in April, May, June, and um, starts to dissipate a little bit as the hurricane season starts to ramp up and sometimes when we get onshore winds it creates more of a problem and then sometimes we'll get offshore winds and it, we won't have any sargassum weed in the surf uh, along the entire atlantic coast for for you know august september october you know so it's it's kind of an interesting phenomenon how it all kind of works together all right i knew you would be the right person to ask and back eddies kind of sounds like a 90s alternative group so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's right, right so, along with uh, right along with Boulder Zone. That's another of our <laughs> favorite punk rock groups. <laughs> there you go. Well, very good. Well, let's move on to the next thing then, because uh, you know, in my intro, I set this up, and we talked about this about this time last year. But you know, my memory's not so good. I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So we'll need you to fill us in about this again. So why do Atlantic anglers get just two days? for recreational red snapper season, which is July 14th and 15th, while Gulf Coast anglers, they get more than 60 days, and the commercial fishermen here on the Atlantic, they get six months. So clear this up for us. Who's making these rules? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's, it's the, the math of fishery science is always something that's um, puzzling to everybody who's involved with it. Um, it. Simply put, it's about the numbers. So their assessment for how many red snapper are accessible to Atlantic coast anglers is 
that there's much fewer available to those people than there are in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's the first reason why there's a disparity in the number of fishing days. So, for instance, the Gulf Red Snapper season actually kicks off on June 16th, and it will run all the way through July 31st for recreational anglers. Um, Over on the Atlantic coast, it's only going to be July 14th and 15th, and just two days. And and really, the Atlantic angler should be lucky. He considers himself lucky that, that they have two days because... I think NOAA Fisheries really wanted to give them zero days this year and 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 hold off on the fishing for a whole year because the the stock assessment numbers are are too low. Um, in any case, that's that's what the reason is behind it. Now, if you talk to anglers in the Atlantic, especially anglers out of Jacksonville and St. Augustine and New Smyrna Beach, that northern Atlantic area in Florida, uh, they'll tell you that they cannot even they almost can't fish any of the reef structures off of their coastline without catching red snapper uh, that they're not targeting. They're, they may be trying to fish for grouper or they may be trying to catch uh, mangrove snapper or black sea bass or triggerfish. And all they can catch is red snapper because the red snapper schools will stage in a school uh, higher in the water column above the reef. So as a fishing fishing boat is dropping its bait down to the reef, the first thing it gets to is the school of red snapper, which are aggressive apex predators, of course. So they'll they'll attack your baits before you even get a chance to get down to where you want to catch other other species of fish. Um, so the so the angler will tell you that he doesn't believe in the stock assessment because all he can actually catch is red snapper. So if there's so few of them out there, why why does why is that all you can catch in the Atlantic in the Atlantic fishery? Um, so anyway, that's one of the problems. The second problem they tell me, and this is from NOAA Fisheries themselves, they tell me that the Gulf of Mexico has much more habitat. So the reef structures over there are are very are much larger in some of the places like the Middle Grounds, which is about 90 miles west of St. Petersburg. Um, you've got this area where the reef structure isn't like a thin line. It's, it's like a very broad area of, of, of uh, structure of like coral reefs and rock structures and things like that. And that creates a ton of habitat for, for all these bottom fish. And so if you look around the Gulf of Mexico, especially in Florida, like from the Pensacola area and Destin area, when you go offshore fishing there, the reef structures are, are larger. And so therefore they're holding more fish. So, According to NOAA Fisheries math, there's more habitat for more red snapper to live. So therefore, that's why they uh, are allowing a longer season in Gulf waters. Whereas in the Atlantic coast, that there's like a continental shelf that runs along the coast that that drops down in depth as you go offshore. But the lines where the, the reefs are are very narrow. So these these fish are living on reefs that are narrow in size, and so there isn't as much habitat to hold as many red snappers. So that's why they restrict it down to two days. So that's the that's the logic behind it. I I don't you know I, I've I've written columns for years about how the disparity is really it doesn't make sense to anybody, but uh, it does make sense to the net, to the fishery managers, and so that's what that's the rules we're stuck with right now. I don't know. It just seems crazy to me. All right, so. That, let's say that instead of taking away the two days, why don't they take away a few months of red snapper season 
from the six months that the commercial people are getting. Some of those things, I, I, I just love to sit these people down and kind of get their thoughts on where that comes from, or is there just uh, too much money being exchanged in the fishing from commercial fishers to stop that from happening? Yeah, that's it. That's a good point because that's the other, I didn't, I didn't address that part, but that's the other part of the equation that doesn't make sense. So the way they do the allocation is say that, say whatever fish they're going to, they have a number for how many fish that they're going to allow to be harvested in the Atlantic, in the Atlantic basin this season. And of that number, they divide it up. I think it's, I, I'm, I shouldn't say this in the podcast because I'm not sure what the number is, but I think it's about 60-40 for red snapper. And what they'll do is they'll they'll have different allocation numbers for different fisheries. So, for instance, dolphin fishery will be one thing. It'll be like 80-20. Uh, you know, the uh, grouper fishing will be a different allocation. Kingfish will be a different allocation. So that's how they manage these fisheries. So when they take the number, say they allow, they're going to allow like 60,000 fish to be harvested out of Atlantic waters. They'll divide that in a 60-40 split and they'll say 60% get get to go to the recreational anglers and 40% are going to the commercial anglers because that's about how they assess what the pressure on that fishery is, is, is coming from. So you're going to get more pressure from the recreational fishery than you are from the commercial fishery. So in that commercial fishery, they're going to have an allocation. They're going to tell them, this is how many fish you get to catch. So your season may be as long as six months, but because so few of the commercial fishermen have uh, snapper, grouper, uh, harvest permits, they can use that number for how many fishers are in that fishery and, and, and boil it down to how many fish they're actually going to allocate for them to be able to catch and keep. So it's, so it's, it's different. It's, it looks it looks lopsided when they first announced the rule, but if you look at the numbers, it's 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 a more fair allocation uh, for for how they break it up. Um, but I I always there's there's many times where they get that allocation. You can argue about how the allocation is being divided up as to whether or not they're dividing it up fairly or not. Yeah, you know, as far as delicacy goes, where does red snapper fall among fish as far as uh you know a, a fish that you want to go out and catch and eat. You know, it's a it's a good fish. It's a good fish to eat. Uh, one thing about it is, and, and this is hard to decide with the the way we have the two day season in Atlantic waters, because the limit is such where uh, an angler can only catch one snapper per day, uh, you know, during the season. So, um, if you were to go out and go Atlantic red snapper fishing this year, you can only catch two fish, and you're not allowed to replace the fish. Like you can't take a fish put it in the fish box. And if you catch a bigger one, throw the smaller one back. You're not allowed to do that. You can only catch that first one is the one that counts for you. And that could be, you know, it could be an eight pound fish or a seven pound fish, which by all intents and purposes is, a, is plenty of fish for, you know, for to feed two people or three people at a dinner table. Um, but these fish, the red snapper can grow up to about 45 pounds. And if you catch a 45 pound snapper, that's going to be, that's going to feed a whole family for a couple of days, you know? Um, in any case, the meat is great. It's really good tasting meat. Um, it's, it's probably among snappers. It's, it's a nice, uh, it's got good flavor, but it's not fishy. It's a white flaky meat. It's a, you can cook it in a variety of ways. You can, you can broil it, you can bake it, you can, uh, fry it. You know, some people like to stuff it and then, 
bake it, maybe a crab meat stuffing, you know, and, and cook it like that. So the the meat itself is really good. It's not uh, not fishy at all, and it's it's pretty flavorful. I'd say you know a mutton snapper probably tastes a little better. Um, yellowtail snapper can be pretty good, but it's probably better than a than a mangrove snapper or gray snapper, and what they call it in some places in the state of Florida, they call it gray snapper. Um, we call it mangrove snapper. Um, so it's probably better. It's a better flavor than that, and it's better than most many of your other fish. So it's better than your kingfish and it's better than, uh, you know, your amberjack. It's better than all of those types of, you know, there's a lot of species of fish. Some people like the red snapper better than they like grouper. So, um, it's, it's, it rates higher than all those as far as its flavor. It's a nice mild flavor and not fishy at all. It's good. All righty. Well, now we're all hungry and we're going to keep talking about different types of foods now. So, uh, you know, this is this is like the season of seasons, Ed, because there are so many different seasons going on. And one of the more dangerous ones is coming up. And no, I'm not talking about hurricane season. We'll get to that. But, you know, it's going to be lobster mini season here, which you've termed the annual how not to die while diving for lobster season. It takes place July 26th and 27th. Explain what makes this so dangerous and why seemingly every year we see someone dying down around the Keys doing this. But one thing is, Tim, it's a real popular event, and uh, it's it's something that people uh, look at and they think they think, oh man, it's it's kind of easy to do. I can do it. And if they've got connections and friends that have like a boat or have um you know like uh, hookah rigs, which are the they're those like they're like a, a compressor in a float which has hoses that come out of it that you can attach to regulators and actually breathe so it's not like you have to you know get all your scuba gear together to go to go uh, do it some people though that are advanced um scuba divers do do very well during lobster mini season um so one of the things about it is there's like a false sense of security you, you think to yourself let's like if you, if you were to say to yourself i'm going to go run a marathon you would obviously think to yourself well i have to train and get myself used to it for several months before i actually go try to do it and you'd, you'd work your way up in the in the process of running and and, and lengthening your your miles every day and and conditioning your your body to getting used to it until finally you were able to do it. You might you might start training, you know, two three months ahead of time before you actually uh, you know go compete compete in the marathon. Well, people don't don't look at lobster mini season the same way. But what it is is you're in the water and you're swimming for a very long period of time. And so when you think about it, you go people, a lot of people have pools and they think to themselves, well, I'm in the pool all the time. What's the big deal? You know, well, when you're in the pool, you're, you're relaxing, you're having drinks, you just paddle around, you know, you might paddle around for like, you know, a minute or two, but you're not really doing anything. When you're out there lobster mini season, you've got current and you've got wind, you got a lot of other boats, you've got a lot of other divers. There's almost a, a competitive aspect to it. So when you are out there on the water you think to yourself, well, I got to get my limit before they get their limit. Or, you know, me and that guy over that or in that boat, we're competing on the reef for the same lobsters, basically. So there's almost like this, uh, a, a little bit of an adrenaline boost. There's excitement involved. And what you, what people underestimate is how much swimming they're going to be doing during the day while they're trying to catch these lobsters. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to the swimming, you've got to hold your breath and dive down. So a lot of times you might be in like 
20, 25 feet of water, maybe 30 feet of water, and you're diving down, trying to hold your breath, to dive down, to look under a coral reef ledge, to find these lobsters that are back in there. And then you're trying to use an apparatus to, to, to tickle them to come out and then grab them when they come out and put them in a, in a net that you've got with you that you can carry them in. Um, and you're, only, you're trying to do that while you're either holding your breath or you're using uh, one of these hookah rigs or, or scuba thing. And when you come up, you realize that you've drifted away from where the boat is anchored. So you've got to swim back to the boat. Usually it's up current because you've drifted down current and against the wind. Well, what happens is how many middle-aged, middle-aged you know, men and women have been swimming you know, for you know, half a mile in their training process before they go lobster mini season diving, you know, no, nobody does, you, nobody thinks about it. So if you're a little overweight and a little bit winded and a little bit out of shape and you're, you're actually at a risk probably for some kind of a heart issue or a heart, heart problem while you're out there swimming for, you know, maybe you have got to swim a half mile or a mile that day that you're not even thinking about it while you're out there paddling around diving for these lobsters. So it, it, there's a little bit more physical activity to it than, than people give it credit for. And that's how they get themselves in trouble. And that's where you find out every year we have the same thing where, you know, two to four people in Florida waters end up dying during a uh, lobster mini season. And, and, you know, the majority of them are from heart, heart issues like heart attacks and things like that. And the majority of them are in their, you know, forties and fifties and sixties when they, when they have this problem. Um, some people, we have had other problems. Like you'll see, you'll hear about a maybe a a, a boat running into somebody that'll be an, you know cause injuries, or maybe you'll find you'll you'll hear about somebody who was spear fishing during lobster mini season, and the fish gets them wrapped up in the coral reef, and then they have a problem with that. But um, but usually, you know, the most common thing is when when somebody has a problem with uh with with a heart issue or something like that, or get exhausted doing doing that or, 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 and then again, themselves in trouble. Well, let's see, you can buy them for about 30 bucks a pound, or do I want to drive to the keys, boat, swim, take my life into my own hands? Hmm, I think I'd probably rather go to Captain Tony's and buy them, but you know, you've eaten them. Is it worth risking your life for them? You know, it's, it's funny. Somebody recently told me that, uh, they thought Florida lobster tails are were overrated, which I was I was stunned. It almost knocked me out of my chair. And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And they go, "Yeah, it's just a buttery a butter delivery device. That's all. It's really really <laughs> lobster is." And uh, so you know, you've always got the melted butter, and you dip your lobster tail in there. And you know, I think the um, the thing that I always thought was funny is I would do that the economic breakdown for lobster mini season divers that I would interview that were like working out of the steward area. And, you know, that was the thing that always struck me is that they really could have gone to, you know, the seafood market and bought them for $30 a pound, but here they're spending, you know, they got to get air for the boat. They got to fuel the boat up. They got their friends on board. They got to get the drinks and the, and the lunches and, you know, they got all this expense. They got to go out, you know, if they live in their hometown, that's, that's, that's easy enough. But many people travel to the Keys. They'll, the Keys will have probably 40,000 people that will show up down there during this year's lobster mini season. And the one thing is, is you could say, well, they're all treating it like a vacation. It's like a family vacation. They go down there and they, you know, they're, they've got their, um, they've got condos, they've got um, timeshares, they've got, 
you know, uh, other places that they can get lodging. And so when you add that expense up, you're like, wow, it's going to cost them about $350 per lobster tail that they bring home with them, you know? Um, but to them, to them, it's well worth it. And to me, I think it's, I think it's worth it to me too. I, 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 there's something about catching your own lobster and putting it on your own, you know, broiling it over your own grill and then, you know, dipping it in the melted butter. You just melted in the microwave, uh, that makes it all, uh, worthwhile, no matter what, what, what effort or what expense you, you put down to, to achieve it. <laughs> well, I think butter delivery device might be the first album from back eddies, but you know, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that album together here, Ed. It, maybe it'll sound a little bit like Jimmy Buffett, you know, that's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So moving on from lobsters to now scallops, we've got scallop harvest season that's coming up July one and that runs into September. So that's mainly a West Coast thing for the most part, but what can you tell us about the upcoming scallop harvest season? Uh, well, the thing about that is uh, it, if you haven't tried it yet, you need to figure out, you need to do some planning and try it. It is, for me, what I would say to people is it's a great family level event, especially if you've got kids that are, you know, just started swimming. They're like, you know, seven, eight, nine years old or, or older. Um it's a great thing you can do as a family. It's easier than lobster diving. I'll tell you that right now. So lobster diving can be a little tricky. Scallop diving, um, I, I, I won't say, I won't say it's not tricky, but it's just easier. You're in shallower water. It's kind of like an Easter egg hunt underwater. A lot of times you can snorkel to do it. So you're only in like four to six to eight feet of water max. You know, which is pretty simple diving for for anybody. You're not going to swim as much as you would in lobster mini season. It is only restricted to the Gulf Coast of Florida, so pretty much from the Pasco County area all the way up to about where Mexico Beach is. That's the that's the Florida's designated Bay Scallop Harvest area for recreational uh, diving. They do have seasons, so you have to pay attention to that. And there's the seasons are broken up by by area. So for instance, like Pasco County, the season opens on July 1st and runs to August 6th. Um, but then Levi, Citrus and Hernando counties, it starts on July 1st, but it goes all the way up to September 24th. The, the Fen Holloway river area to the Suwannee river area, uh, that includes like Keaton beach and Steenhatchee. That's June 15th all the way through Labor Day, which is September like 4th or something this year. Um, you've also got designation for St. Joseph Bay and Gulf County. That's later on in August and September. And then Franklin County and Northwestern Taylor County is July 1st through September 24th. I don't expect you to remember all this stuff from the podcast, but please go to the myfwc.com and type in scallops, and it'll it'll bring up all of these things. And the other thing it'll tell you is you can only collect your bag limit is only two gallons of scallops whole per person and up to 10 gallons per vessel. So I don't care if you got 10 people on board, you still can't collect 20 gallons. You're going to need to collect 10 gallons of scallops while they're in their shell. Or if they're going to stop you and you've already cleaned them and they're, you're on, you've got them with you on your boat, you can only have one pint per person of the actual scallop meat or a half gallon per vessel. So they've already figured these bag limits out for, for people. Um, they want us to be a safe and fun activity. 
And and it's like I said, like like you were talking about, it kind of sets up, you know, Florida's uh, hunt and gather season, which is starts with red snapper season, July 14th to 15th, goes into the lobster mini season, July 26th and 27th, and then you know, in in the midst of all this is is a scallop season going on in the Gulf Coast counties, you know, from the Pasco County to Mexico Beach area. Um, so you've got you've got all this all these opportunities to go out there and, and harvest your own your own dinners from Florida waters, which are, are which is pretty unique and pretty pretty good opportunity. The, the scallop diving season, I just I just recommend it for anybody. Just make sure you got plenty of sunscreen on, and you know if you, if you if that area that you're going to go scallop diving in got hit by a tropical storm, which can sometimes happen, um, maybe hold off that year and go the next year because if you can. Because if the fresh waters are coming down those rivers, like Suwannee River, Steenhatchee River, it can actually wash the scallops out. Scallops like a certain level of salinity, not too brackish, not too fresh. They like it a little more saline, so they will move. The scallops can move, unlike oysters and clams. Clams will dig in in the soil. Oysters are, will, will set up on rock beds. Clam, scallops, however, actually will open and close their shells real fast and can swim and when you're trying to catch them, they'll do that. They'll try to get away from you. It's a slow swim. You can catch them anyway, but it's kind of interesting when they're doing it because they got little eyes they can look at you with. So it's kind of a it's kind of a fun time. It's fun to catch them, fun to clean them, fun to have scallop scallop dishes afterwards. And and I recommend it for any any kind of family out there. All righty. So my takeaway is lobster mini season. You need lots of money, a boat. You got to risk your life. Scallop season, you just need a little sunscreen in the right spot. So I know which one I would choose at this point in life. But uh, hey, you know, if, if you got the the type of um, get up and go to go do your lobsters, by all means. So here, here's the other really dangerous season we have. And now this one is one we always have to take seriously. And that's hurricane season. Started June 1st. We've already had, you know, a bit of a disturbance out there in the Gulf and work its way around Florida. So you know, I hear this is expected to be an average season, which I never really know what that means because all it takes is one to make it a miserable season. So talk a little bit about this year's hurricane season, Ed, and what does hurricane season mean for our recreational fishermen? You know, it can it can really uh it can really mess up your plans when you're a recreational fisherman, that's for sure. When if there's a storm uh anywhere nearby. So let's talk about the average part of the season. You know, the, 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 there's two hurricane forecasts that come out every year. One is from the Colorado State University Tropical Meteorological Project. That's being run by that uh, Dr. Phillips Clock, Philip Klotzba right now. And um, he, they'll come out and they'll have their, their, their estimation for what the season's going to be. And then NOAA, NOAA's National Hurricane Center will come out with theirs usually a couple days later. Um, and right around June 1st, they always make sure they've got a good update. And usually the, the story was about the same. It's you know anywhere from eight storms to 13 storms is usually what they tell us the forecast is. Um, anywhere from two to three of them could be as high as category four. Uh, anywhere, and there's you know a 35% probability that one of those will hit the coast of Florida. And, and pretty much for the last 25 years, that forecast to me, hasn't really changed a whole lot. Um, but like you said, all it takes is one. And last year, if you guys, no one remember this because everybody can, you know, especially Southwest Florida, you focus on the impacts of what Hurricane Ian did. Um, but uh, 
that storm was late in September when it hit. And then and, and we're, we're maybe even October. And then the last, the next storm that came, we had another storm that kind of scraped up the Atlantic coast. And that was Hurricane Nicole. And that didn't hit us till about um, mid-November. So about the you know, first week of November. The problem with these hurricanes is, is, is all the effects that they can affect. Usually a hurricane could be, its, its wind field will be like 250 miles across. Okay. Well, the whole state of Florida is only 180 miles across. So from Port Canaveral to uh, Clearwater Beach, you're only looking at about 180, 190 miles right there across the, the widest part of the state of Florida. Um, in some places, it's narrower than that. Like Naples to Miami is narrower than that. Uh, you know, from you know Cedar Key over to Daytona, it's not that not that far away. So in different parts of the state, you can you can measure it differently. So when a storm comes in, like Hurricane Ian, when it made landfall in Fort Myers, um, it 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 was affecting Titusville, and it and as it came across Florida, it started to come across from through Orlando. And then went out to sea somewhere like in Daytona. And during that whole time, I mean, it was wreaking havoc across the entire state as it moved across the state. And in fact, in the, you know, as all the damage we know happened, all the wind damage and storm surge damage that had happened in Sanibel and Captiva and Cayo Costa and Fort Myers Beach, um, where we, when the storm got to crossing the Kissimmee and Orlando areas, it dumped 16 inches of rain in one of one storm night. It dumped 16 inches of rain, which created problems all the way down through the whole Lake Okeechobee system and then out both sides back to Fort Myers and Stewart. And then as it went out to, to see the new Smyrna Beach, I even interviewed people. I interviewed sailboaters who were staying in Titusville that had no idea they'd be affected by the storm at all that actually lost their entire vessel. They're, you know, anchored there north of the Max Brewer Causeway. So there was, you know, tremendous damage by these storms um, can be wrought. And and they're usually have an effect on, you know, there's the effect where they hit the state, but they affect recreational anglers who are offshore boaters even up to two days before they even arrive by generating a swell a lot of times, generating uh, onshore or offshore winds. So you've got these impacts that, completely can shut down the fishing and boating for up to two days ahead of time. And then several days after it passes, because after they pass, there's, there's usually a, a, you know, it's usually left a, you know, it's wreaked a little bit of havoc in the area. So it's left things like uh, broken, you know, pulled up channel markers, you know, broken docks and, you know, dock parts are floating around in the, in the different waterways. Um, you've got, dip, you know, in, in the sit case where Fort Myers beach, you had literally, and I'm not exaggerating, you had tens of thousands of boats that were absolutely destroyed and littered every waterway in that whole southwest Florida area. So from the, you know, from Naples all the way to Port Charlotte, you had 50,000 vessels that were just destroyed and different parts of them were floating around in the waterways. So as recreational fishermen, it's going to, all that's going to impact you, plus the amount of fresh water that fell is always going to run out the rivers and, and out the canals into the estuaries. So it's going to change your salinity in all your estuaries, which is also going to affect 
fishing patterns. So you've got a pretty devastating effect on any, any of these storms when they come by. And all we can ever do is just hope that we don't get one, you know, and hope we don't get hit at all. Yeah, that's so true. And here in Brevard County, where I am, I mean, we've still got the derelict vessels that are littering the river that, that got beat up and thrown against the shore and stuff. So, you know, hurricanes, they're not cleaned up in a year and you, you still see the effect. So let's hope for, a, you know, a safer and more quieter season, at least here in Florida. So, Ed, we're, we're running low on time here, but I did want to get your thoughts on two hunts that are going on here around the state. And, uh, you know, these ones can net people some some cash prizes. So, Neither is one that I want to be a part of. So the first is the lionfish harvesting season, or, or just the lionfish harvesting. And the second is a python challenge. So let's start with lionfish. Now, I've eaten one of these, and they're, they're pretty good. It was cooked with like a teriyaki flavor, and I know it comes with some dangers. And the first is you have to harpoon them. And the man that actually caught our lionfish, we got to see video of him getting pretty up close and personal with a shark that was interested in what was on his harpoon. And the second danger is, you know, there's a certain type of toxin that's inside of them. So tell us how people are scoring cash by bringing in lionfish and, and talk about those dangers associated with it. Well, one of the things is, is that there'll be this is during the summertime when the waters are calmer for most of the state is when they run these different lionfish derbies. And a lot of times it'll be like, like the Keys will have one. It'll be like the, the there's an organization called Reef. They'll have a, a lionfish derby and it'll last for, you know, maybe a weekend or a couple couple days. And they'll they'll usually give prizes for the most lionfish harvested or and also the largest or smallest lionfish harvested. And they'll give out cash prizes or sometimes just prizes. And they're just trying to raise awareness, encourage people to harvest as many lionfish as they can. But the FWC, they do a great job. They've been doing it for several years now. They have um, something they call the Lionfish Challenge. And they're encouraging people. It's uh, it's low entry fee. I think it's I think it might be free to enter. Um, but they, they give out prizes, and it's a summer-long contest. So they're trying to encourage you to dive as much as you can and to collect as many of these lionfish as you can. Lionfish aren't very good at taking a hook and line. So they're they're smaller fish. They have a small mouth. So to catch them is very difficult. It's very hard to catch them. So you have to uh, harvest them in other methods. And the, the most common way to do it is to scuba dive. So you have to have your scuba gear. And you're usually diving in, um, you know, it's, it's, I won't say it's advanced, but it's, um, you know, you've got to be, a, a certified scuba diver to be able to uh, dive and catch these. And sometimes they'll be in as shallow as 40 feet, but a lot of times they'll be in, in depths of about 60 to 90 feet of water on coral reefs and artificial reefs around the state. Um, the winners that we had last year, two of the winners came out of the Pensacola and Destin area, um, which were very popular places for artificial reef projects. And the artificial reefs, Although they create habitat for the desired species like snappers and groupers and other fish like that and cobia, um, they also create habitat for undesired species, which are lionfish, which are from the Indo-Pacific waters and have been around here for, for about 35 years now. Um, and their population is exploding. The, the lionfish, um, can, its population can expand very, very rapidly. They can have up to 30,000 eggs whenever they spawn. They can spawn every year, so there's a there's the, the multiplying of their numbers really it just blooms and blooms. But um, 
but the last year, you know, the, the winning, the winning guys, they, they harvested about 600, 700 linefish. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a great event for, for people who are skilled divers and who are going to be diving anyway. And, you know, a lot of these guys will be out there spearing fish, but they'll bring along what they call a zookeeper, which is a big PVC pipe with a cap on both ends. And they've got a way to easily put lionfish in there. And you can take this little harpoon. It's like, it looks like a little trident. It's got three little prongs on the end. It's not very large. And you're going to spear these lionfish, which grow up to about 18 to 24 inches in size. To, <clears throat> the toxin is bad if you get stung by the, uh, by the fins that stick off fish, but it's very easy to harpoon them, put them in these zookeepers, bring them back to the boat and back, back to the dock. And then to prepare them, the first thing a, a person does before they fillet them is they take some scissors or some shears and they cut the fins off. And that removes any any possibility from there of any toxins, you know, any, any you coming into contact with any toxins. And like you said, the fillet is a very nice fillet. It's white fish, not very fishy flavored. You know, teriyaki is a good flavor to um, cook with them. But you can, you know, a lot of people just use like butter and lime, and um, you know, they use uh, typical ways that you would broil fish. Um, cooks very easily. It's very mild flavor. Very good eating. Um, the only problem is, is you can't harvest them with like nets or long lines or things like that, like you would other types of fish. So the, the, we're reduced to having to harpoon them wherever these, these fish are caught. And there is a commercial fishery for them. So commercial divers, you know, harpoon them and then bring them back and sell them in the, in the seafood industry and sell them to restaurants. So that's how you, you will see them on restaurant menus because there is a commercial fisherman who's actually providing fresh lionfish to that restaurant. All righty. And the second challenge that I want to talk about comes with the python, which, of course, has become invasive, especially in South Florida and the Everglades. And there's a $30,000 payout uh, that will happen at the end of this. So, do you know, is that total paid out to the winner? Is that paid out per snake? Like, how does all of that work? And do you plan to trudge down in there in the dark and search for 25-foot-long snakes? You know, um, first of all... it harvesting snakes or hunting snakes um, is not something I'd be afraid of. I, I, I wouldn't mind doing it at all, but I'm an old man now. So the, the idea of traipsing around in the, you know, hot mosquito infested uh, Florida swamps um, it, during, you know, nighttime hours is just something that doesn't appeal to me very much. So <laughs> I'm probably not going to be doing it. Um, the $30,000 I think is a total purse for like, I think five or six different prizes. They pay out for top lady, top, you know, <clears throat> uh, top, who has the most of them, who has the largest one. So they've got different prize categories you can compete in. I think last year they they, they were able to generate about 300 uh, hunters were able to go do this. So they were, um, they had them, you know, they had them traipsing around the Florida Everglades. So far the python uh, is, is limited to the southern portion of Florida, south of Lake Okeechobee. Still, most of the activity is in the Everglades and Big Cypress and some of the some of the state and federal game lands that are down there and, and water management district lands that are down there. So that's where the activity is going to actually take place. Um, it's it's a great event to encourage people to come do it. There's still a lot of novelty with, uh, you know, like YouTube uh, stars and people like that, Instagram stars. You know, they're going down there. They're they're creating content by being able to do all this stuff. 
and <clears throat> harvest these uh, big snakes. The snakes are invasive. They need to be taken out of the wild. There's no easy way to do it. You can't bait them. You can't trap them. There's no there's no practical way to do any of that stuff. So the only way that uh, really you can do it is by walking around out there at nighttime with uh, headlamps. And you want to a lot of times what the typical way they do it is they'll walk down uh, different roadways that are created by the water management districts that, and berms that are out there in the Everglades. And as they're walking along, they'll see these snakes will come out. They'll come out of the swamps and they'll kind of lay on the road to gather that warmth to get ready to go hunt for food later that night. And that's where they find a lot of these snakes. The males might be seven, eight, nine, ten 10 feet long. The females are the ones that can get to up to 15, 16, sometimes 18 feet long. And some of those animals are 18 feet long. They weigh about 185 pounds. So when you when you know one of these hunters is able to get a hold of one of them, he's going to need a few hands and a little bit of help to get, grab one because there's a fine line between being the hunter and being the hunted when you're hunting uh, 18-foot pythons. Yeah, it sounds like if you take a python that big, you're going to need Hulk Hogan's 24-inch pythons, brother. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's right. You know, <laughs> for those who don't remember, that's what the Hulkster called his oversized arms in the 1980s. And he claimed that was for him eating his vegetables and taking vitamins, but I think he was taking special vitamins. That's a subject for a different podcast, though, Ed. So is there anything else you wanted to get across to us here before I let you go? And again, we can find all your work at tcpalm.com in the pages of the Treasure Coast newspapers. And that's along Port St. Lucie, Fort Pierce, Vero Beach, and Stewart. So uh, what, anything else you want to get across to us, Ed? Yeah, the, the only thing I would say is that we talked about all these great ways that you can, uh, you know, you, these open seasons for you to go out and gather and hunt and, and, and grab dinner. And it's a great way to you know, spend time with family and friends, but just be safe. Whatever you do out there, be real safe doing it. And, you know, when you least expect it, <laughs> things can go wrong. So try to try to prepare the best you can and be safe when you're out every out on the water doing anything. Yeah, because if there's one thing, I mean, we kind of joke around a little bit, but yes, diving for lobsters can be very dangerous. Hunting giant snakes, dangerous. Doing things in hurricanes, dangerous. So please, Florida is a wonderful place to live, but there are times a year where you really have to be cautious and vigilant. Ed, where can people find you on social media so they can uh, go find all the links to all the wonderful work you do? You can find me at uh, on Instagram and Twitter at, um, at, at TCPalmEKiller. Um, or you can also find me on Facebook at Ed Keller. And so most of our content I share in both those in both those places. So you can find it there. All righty. Well, that's great, Ed. I know we'll be talking to you here in a few months because I try and have you on at least quarterly to tell people what they should be doing here in the state of Florida during the different seasons. So as always, I appreciate all the knowledge you bring to us. And thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Tim. All righty. And that's going to do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters. And to quote comedian Mitch Hedberg, you know when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish and let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, they just want to make it late for something. Sure, why not? Thanks for listening, and join me again next time. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. 
Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.